I'm Dr. Michelle Plaster, and you're listening to Between Two White Coats, a podcast where we dig into key issues surrounding health and wellness. I'm a family medicine doctor, and my co-host, Amber Foster, is a family medicine nurse practitioner. In our combined 30 years in medicine, we've seen a lot. We're discussing some of our biggest questions, obstacles, and patient-centered advice in hopes of educating you and keeping you informed. Make sure you hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. If you have found this podcast helpful, give us a five-star rating and review. This helps other people find our podcast. And make sure you share it with your friends. Thank you for your time. We look forward to serving you. We're welcoming back Dr. Eric Flint, who is kind enough to hang out with us some more. And uh, you have likely listened to our episode on cancer and genetics. And if you haven't, I encourage you to, where you learn a lot about who needs genetic screening for cancer risk and how we use that information to empower and take better care of patients. And today we're going to jump into something that I really am passionate about as a primary care, um, the different treatments for cancer. You know, most of the time when I, I give someone the unfortunate news that they have a cancer diagnosis, they are um, thinking two things. I'm going to die, and if I don't die or on my way to death is going to be this horrible treatment that is going to make me wish I was dead. And I think we all know someone who had cancer, probably in the remote past, that had a treatment that was challenging, um, and we automatically go there. I frequently, uh, I use the example of when I was pregnant, but uh, I frequently bring to people's attention, we don't talk about when everything goes great. That's not what is super obvious. And so, you know, I, I was shocked when I walked around eight months pregnant and every person who had a bad delivery, a bad pregnancy, <laughs> stopped me, strangers <laughs> on the street, oh, good luck, this is terrible. Uh, and I thought, why does everyone want to tell you when it goes bad? Now, people deliver babies every day. I've delivered tons of babies. It goes well almost all the time. And no one stops you to tell you when it goes well. So I think what is ingrained in our brains is, you know, of course, the bad situations. And so what I really hope that we can do today is educate people about how far cancer treatment has come, that uh, every cancer treatment is not chemotherapy, and every chemotherapy that we use is not your grandma's chemotherapy. Um, so uh, take us through a little bit about, uh, let's start first with um, when someone leaves my office and they've received the, the often overwhelming news that they have a cancer diagnosis and they come straight to your office and they meet their oncologist, what are the first things that happen from the time that we say it looks like cancer, your biopsy has come back as cancer, and then they meet you and where do we go initially? Well, first, uh, I will I'll say that I'm, I'm blessed to work in a practice that, uh, similar to yours, is a family environment. And so when you come to meet from our check-in staff to uh, our MAs and nurses, as well as APPs and physicians, you're going to be greeted and treated like you were family from competent, cutting-edge oncologists who are in your community close to home. And let me just echo that because my mother was one of your all's patients and I was blessed to get to come to her visits. 
And she loved it. I could barely get her out of the office. Uh, Mom, I have to get to work. Come on. Well, I'm talking with my doctor about gardening. Yes. And I think that's an important part. I I would want my family member treated in that sort of environment, and we do strive to provide that. Uh, At the initial visit, certainly this is going to be reviewing the studies that uh, you all have ordered, whatever imaging and biopsies may have been done. And we're going to talk about uh, additional tests uh, many times to best determine a treatment option. As we talked earlier, and you also um, serving your country in a uniform, uh, us uh, medical folks who have um, uh, been in that situation um, often describe cancer care as planning a, a, engage, a military engagement. And why is that, that relevant? Because the more planning that we have to know who our enemy is, that's the biopsy. Where our enemy is, that's uh, our staging uh, imaging and then molecular uh, and personalized testing to determine the best treatment or the weapons of the cancer to best target those weapons. Um, Those are all the things that we're gonna be talking about at that first visit so we can develop the most comprehensive, effective plan uh, to treat your cancer. So oftentimes, uh, your first your first visit in oncology is going to be more information gathering, um, you know, helping to allow you um, a little bit of insight of what's to come. But there is often more information needed before we can tell you exactly what's to come. Maybe more imaging that needs to be done, CAT scans or other things, or more specific tests to be run on the pathology uh, of the tumor that was biopsied or anything of that sort. Um, And then as that information is gathered, I I love your analogy, then we recognize where is the cancer and all all the details about the cancer. And from there, you all will put together a very specialized treatment plan. Um, Take me from that point forward. So oncology is a team sport. And um, we work closely with uh, the primary care folks taking care of their uh, patients' individual medical conditions, but in oncology specific, uh, I'm a medical oncologist and generally we're considered the quarterbacks of the oncology care team and sort of managing um, the staging and the workup. But we're also gonna many times involve our radiation oncology uh, colleagues and our surgeons uh, in that cancer care plan. And so uh, many of the cases are presented at a multidisciplinary um, tumor conference where specialists in each of those um, realms will offer input and insight onto next best uh, staging images or next best place to biopsy or additional testing that might be needed. So each and every patient in our office is essentially getting multiple second opinions uh, so that there's a consensus to determine a treatment plan. So little did people know that doctors who have never met them face-to-face have taken um, a lot of care into making recommendations as the team decides how to move forward. That's right. Um, when So uh, it comes before the board, and I, what would be situations where the full treatment may be 100% surgical? So in early stage uh, diseases, uh, so meaning smaller tumors, that can be easily excised, like a small breast cancer sometimes um, can um, um, initially, 
initially be surgical only treatment depending on uh, the type of cancer. Now, sometimes later after surgery, we do have to add additional therapies depending on the biology of the cancer and radiation. Um, there are other, other tumors like uh, sarcomas, when they are small, can be completely treated surgically and, and resected surgically. Um, uh, but unfortunately, sometimes that information, even if we think surgery is the only option, sometimes we find out later because of um, the level of involvement on the pathologic sample that additional therapies may be needed after surgery. There is never, although patients may think that we are um, solely treating, there is never a time when your physician is not still information gathering. Correct. You know, that's we overthink things. That's what we do. We just sit around and try to come up with what more to think about. Yes. And so truly, um, you know, uh, if, if your cancer seems to be very isolated, uh, then saying we think we can get all the cancer um, with surgery. And and then, of course, there's, and, and we'll come back to this, but there's always that follow-up. Whenever, you know, we think we can get all the cancer with whatever, there will always be that follow-up to make sure that it doesn't come back or um, or that we did indeed get all the cancer. Um, so so surgery and our surgical oncologists who are the, the surgical members of the team may cut out the cancer and, and along with, and that may be all that needs to be done, or there may be cutting out the cancer, cutting out the, the tumors or the lymph nodes that may be the beginning of a spread, or cutting out some lymph nodes to make sure that there's no spread there. As Dr. Flint's saying, you know, we're, we're gathering more information through these surgeries. Um, and then I, all of this, I always say to people, we truly don't know what tissue's made up of until we look at it under the microscope. And so we can see lumps or bumps, and not all tumors are cancers. Tumors can be made up of normal tissue that's not gonna do anything except take up space. Um, but then we look at all of this that's taken out in surgery under the microscope, do a lot of very specific testing, um, coming back to what we talked about in a prior episode on genetics, looking at what is the type of cancer and, and what is the genetic makeup of that. Um, and then that information helps us to move forward and um, would allow you all to then do what? Um, to determine their risk for recurrence. Um, and their staging. So if uh, lymph nodes are found to be positive, that may take a patient from a stage one tumor to a stage two or three tumor, depending on the type of malignancy. Um, the depth of invasion, especially like for melanoma, is so important for the staging as well and determining the risk of recurrence. And at certain levels, risk of recurrence is when we talk about additional therapies, what we call adjuvant therapies, like radiation and chemotherapy after surgery. Take me through, I'm so glad you brought up staging. I think I would have forgot to ask, but I think it's so important because when patients are being treated for cancer, they're always told their stage. And then they tell their loved ones. And um, and it's hard to know, like, what, what should I be getting excited or what's more worrisome? Um, I, I appreciate this is a really hard question because it depends on the cancer and other things. This isn't a one-size-fits-all answer. <laughs> But um, give us some basic knowledge about staging that if a, if a loved one were to say, I have stage whatever cancer, how to interpret that? First, I think we should think of cancers depending on the general type, meaning staging for liquid tumors like leukemia, multiple myeloma, or lymphoma is very different than staging for solid tumors like breast cancer, colon cancer, lung cancer. And so, um, for instance, a stage four lymphoma 
uh, does not mean a uncurable or end-stage cancer, but a highly curable, highly treatable malignancy. And so even though the numbers people may associate with certain outcomes or risk of um, uh, of certain outcomes, they may be, they're very dependent on the type of cancer. But for the most part, most patients, um, when they th- think of staging cancer, are talking about solid tumors. And stage one tumors are those that typically many times, for instance, that lung cancer can be treated totally surgically, stage uh, one lung cancer, um, remove the tumor, caught early, and oftentimes no additional therapy. Stage two would be a somewhat larger tumor or um, often based off size, uh, depending on the tumor type, would make a stage two stage two tumor. Stage three is generally locally advanced. It's involving the lymph nodes. And for uh, the average solid tumor cancer, most stage three cancers, we're talking about um, adjuvant therapy, whether that's stage three colon or or using it for stage three lung cancer, for instance. And then stage four would be cancer that spread outside the primary site of origin. So it spread to another organ in the body, another area in the body outside the initial location. Okay, that is super helpful. So we've talked about one approach and treatment as surgical treatment, and uh, and you mentioned uh, radiation and the radiation oncologists that are part of the oncology team. Um, let's. Uh, I think people are a little bit familiar with radiation and um, and have at least heard or are aware that that's how cancer is treated. Um, explain a little bit about radiation when we use radiation as a treatment and what a patient who is undergoing radiation might expect. Uh, so radiation involves uh, using um, electrons or radiation beams to target the cancer and kill the cancer at its side. It's most effective uh, in the cura- incurable cancers for preventing local recurrences. Um, the decision, again, typically for those curable cancers is made after surgery um, based off the final staging, depth of the tumor, involvement of lymph nodes. Um, It can also be used in the palliative care setting. So uh, for patients who have had cancer spread to their bones, that might be very painful. Uh, And maybe the radiation is not part of a curative treatment plan, but a palliative treatment plan to relieve pain um, uh, by decreasing the involvement of cancer in that bone, um, which can be very effective for pain control. Radiation uh, oncologists develop the radiation treatment plans, and, and these can vary from daily treatments for 10 days to daily treatments for six weeks. Uh, each radiation tri- treatment is approximately 10 minutes long, and um, come in, you get your radiation and leave. The most common side effects are skin-related um, uh, toxicity, so much of like having a sunburn or some variation of that, maybe some fatigue, but generally well-tolerated. Perfect. So we've talked about surgery and we've talked about radiation. Now I think is when it gets really interesting. Um, when you know most people think I'm going to get surgery, I'm going to get radiation, or I'm going to get chemotherapy. Um, but the whole uh, how do we try to poison the tumor? How do we try to get to those cancer cells? Um, not just the tumor, but cancer cells anywhere and kill the cancer cells. Uh, Chemotherapy kind of historically was the idea of we're going to try to kill the cancer cells and some other cells might die too, like your hair follicles or things that might cause hair loss or um, there. And and we associate it with um, a lot of really bad adverse side effects. 
Um, so let's talk about chemotherapy first, and then we'll move on to all of the other types of therapy that have uh, come about and a lot of people aren't familiar with. But uh, chemotherapy in general, what, how would you describe that? And then um, I definitely want to touch on how it has evolved over time so that we don't all have um, the misconcept of how harsh chemotherapy can be. So chemotherapy is generally uh, designed to target rapidly dividing cells, very commonly mechanisms of cell division and DNA. Um, and uh, that therapy is not always as specific for a certain cancer, but uh, working more on rapidly dividing cells, hence the side effects like losing your hair many times. Um, your mother or your grandmother's chemotherapy is, is very different than the chemotherapy given today, even sometimes when we're given the same drugs. And why is it different? Because our supportive care medicines have come so far. So when my grandmother had cancer in the mid-80s and received adjuvant chemotherapy, the only antiemetics or nausea medicines that we had were Decadron mm. uh, and Finnergan. And so um, that was a very different experience than a woman that I might give chemotherapy today. In fact, I had a patient in my office just last week who had ovarian cancer over 10 years ago. And her ovarian cancer had uh, recently, unfortunately, relapsed. But she had a long disease-free interval and was in remission for a long time from her initial treatment. So we opted to use the same chemotherapy drugs that she got at that time to get her remission again. And after her first treatment, she came into the office in tears and uh, I was a little taken aback and not really sure how to uh, how to take this and said you know why are you crying ma'am what what and she said these are tears of joy Dr. Flint because I was 10 years younger but my experience with chemotherapy today was a completely different experience I had no nausea I had no vomiting I walked with my grandkids on the weekend so even though sometimes we might be given the same chemotherapy drugs the experience is very different Wonderful. That, and I think that's so important. I always try to remind patients that their experience is going to be entirely unique um, and that their oncologist is going to be there to help them do as well as they can with the treatments and that there are so many different things we can do to help people do well. Um, I, outside of chemotherapy, what are some of the other newer treatment options for cancer? So sort of an uh, align with what we were talking about earlier in genetics, uh, personalized medicine. So the more uh, we can know about the tumor and, and the um, mechanisms of the uh, tumor formation at the DNA level, the more we have developed treatment options to target that therapy. So we have targeted treatments and uh, those range everything from certain types of leukemia has targeted treatments to lung cancer to melanoma um, and, and these are often many times pill-based therapies that are have um, limited side effects and are uniquely targeted to that individual patient's tumor. And we find uh, this information two ways. One, as we talked about earlier, genetic, that's germline genetic changes, meaning you were born with these changes, all the cells in your body have that defect. Um, two, genetic changes in the tumor that may not exist in other cells in the body and only in the tumor. We call that next generation sequencing. Um, and we're looking for tumor genetic changes to target as well. Um, for instance, lung cancer, we have 
um, lung cancers that sometimes harbor an EGFR mutation, that we can offer a pill to that patient over chemotherapy or other therapies. Um, and that's not a mutation that a patient was born with, but again, just in the cancer cells. And then finally, we talk about immunotherapy. And immunotherapy um, is uh, the new kid in town uh, in oncology therapy. Um, first really um, determined to be beneficial in melanoma, but now exploding into multiple tumor types and for finding benefit. These are medicines um, that are designed to teach your immune system to fight the cancer. Cancer has this ability to be almost like a Trojan horse where um, it looks like your normal cells and your immune system goes by and think, goes by in your body and thinks that, that this, there's nothing wrong. You know, there's nothing here, we're, we're fine, we're, we're the good guys. But they're the cancer cells. And if the immune system can be taught to target those cells and fight similar to how the immune system might fight a foreign infection uh, and to see the cancer as foreign, uh, then it can attack the cancer and your body can be part of that cancer fight. And so that's uh, immunotherapy. What would be some of the common side effects of immunotherapy? 90% of patients have no side effects. Wow. Uh, and uh, m most patients generally don't know they're on any cancer therapy when, it, when given by themselves. But um, anything that begin that <laughs> anything that ends in itis, it can be a potential side effect. So pneumonitis, hepatitis, dermatitis. And the reason that is, is as we know, the, those that you take care of that have autoimmune conditions, meaning their immune system is overactive to certain organs, maybe their skin or their joints, like rheumatoid arthritis. So the link between the immune system and inflammation is already there in some patients. And so it's unique to that patient's response to the immunotherapy. But sometimes the immune system gets turned on a little bit too high, revved up a little too much, and it might start attacking um, the skin or an organ. Well, the way we manage that is we give anti-inflammatories like steroids and we hold the therapy um, should patients have a significant degree. And most patients improve those side effects and uh, many times can be retreated um, after a break in therapy. When a person's on immunotherapy, does it change their immune system's ability to fight infection or um, other concerns with their immune system in general? It's a very good question, uh, especially in, in light of the um, pandemic that we're all experiencing. You know, uh, we, we know that traditional chemotherapy and actually many of the targeted therapies can affect your immune system, meaning that their immune response may not be as robust. They may be a higher risk for infection. Immunotherapy is very different, so um, there does not appear to be an increased risk for infection simply by having immunotherapy. Now, the underlying cancer may put them at higher risk for infections. Let's say they have lung cancer, that certainly can uh, predispose them to lung infections because often that's coexisting with lung disease. Um, but the immunotherapy itself is generally not felt to increase uh, their risk for infection. Is there anything that we haven't talked about on treatments in general that you feel like would serve patients to know? Um, I think one of the most important things when we talk about personalized medicine is, um, you know, 10 years ago when you came into my office and you had lung cancer, um, I could develop a treatment plan fairly quickly and say, this is your treatment plan. You're going to get chemotherapy and you're going to get radiation or it would be, and it would not deviate from that. 
But many times when I'm meeting you the first day, I'm telling you based off what I see now, maybe we're starting with chemotherapy for your cancer, but I'm doing additional testing. That may take two to three weeks to get results. And in that time, once those results have returned, I may totally change our treatment plan. Um, and so, or, or sometimes for some cancers, I may say your cancer is stable enough that let's, let's actually not do any therapy until we get those results. And so that can be frustrating for a family. One, why is my oncologist changing my treatment or why is my oncologist delaying my treatment? And really so that I have the best information or information has come available that I'm able to modify treatment to better uh, better care for you, better um, affect the cancer. Really customizing it more to your specific cancer as we go, as opposed to we chose the wrong thing. Um, no, we've just got more information to hone in on something different. And I think another point in this is also, um, let's take breast cancer for instance. So we had talked about breast cancer treated surgically and depending on the stage and the type, offering chemotherapy after. So 20 years ago, most, regardless of stage or um, prognostic markers like estrogen receptor and progesterone receptor, patients were getting adjuvant chemotherapy or chemotherapy after surgery um, because we knew that it saved lives. We just didn't know exactly who got the most benefit. So now we also have molecular testing. Uh, take, for instance, a, a test called Oncotype DX, which looks at the genetics of the cancer, not the genetics of the patient, but in that tumor itself, to tell us a score uh, that would give us the information in regards to who benefits and who does not benefit. So you may have the same exact stage breast cancer, uh, one patient who uh, markers all the same, who I don't recommend chemotherapy for because their molecular testing comes back, low risk, no need for chemotherapy. And the next patient that I see with the exact same information, this test changes my treatment plan to say that you you definitely need chemotherapy. You're the ones that we're going to help uh, benefit. So that can also be hard when you're having this, these discussions with family or friends that have gotten treatment for the same cancers. But in reality, we realize that all cancers are very different, just as we are all unique ourselves. That's super helpful. And I think, you know, so many times... Um, yeah, I've, I hear people all the time, I think it's the common phrase, well, if they can't come up with a cure for cancer, then why can they come up with this? And, um, and we want to put this in a, have we, have we fixed cancer yet? And, uh, we really aren't giving enough credit to how much we have been fixing cancer, that all this research is take, is moved us strides in the right direction of being able to um, have people be treated and live with cancer. Um, and I think all of this also allows people to know that uh, cancer isn't, at the time we say the C word, a terminal diagnosis, that there are so many advances. And even, I love the story about your patient that 10 years ago, a totally different experience with the same medication, because we have come so far and not only has the cancer treatments, the cancer research, the genetics come so far, but even other fields such as um, our friend on Dancitron, Zofran, <laughs> that you know most people who have ever had a hangover know about Zofran. <laughs> um, but Zofran is a great uh, anti-nausea medicine 
that helps people. And I remember early in my training, the only people who ever took Sofran were patients on chemotherapy. And then it became used for so many other people with nausea. Yeah, but, and, and now the drugs I give have piggybacked on that science. And we are rarely using Zofran in the preventative. So the uh, patients will often get several cocktail drugs, one of them being a, a longer acting, basically, Zofran that may last four days. They get that before their chemotherapy treatment in cocktails with other drugs that have been developed, such that really we should see little to no nausea. They all go home with Zofran uh, and composing to have PRN or as needed, but. But may not even need it. They may not yeah. even need it. Yeah, uh, which is just really incredible. Um, and this brings me to cancer as a chronic disease. Um, you know, so many times in, in our primary care setting, we're creating people's problem lists that we're always looking at. And so many of my patients have history of breast cancer, even to the point where, you know, that the coding that we have to do for insurance is very specific. Is it breast cancer or is it history of breast cancer? Meaning really that yes, they, they were told that they had this, they've been treated for it, and it's something that we all wanna keep in mind because it changes you know different things with how we approach this patient and knowing that they had that history, but it really is a history of, it's, it's something that's been treated and, um, and has, we'll say, become more of a history than a current problem. Um, when, ha- different treatments, we, you know, we've said it's very specific to the cancer, to the genetics, to the treatment options. Different treatments are gonna have different durations, but at some point you're gonna look at your patient and say, I think we're done treating your cancer. Um, how has that decided the duration of treatment? Um, very unique for the cancer type. Uh, if and if we take for breast cancer, for instance, and we're talking about um, um, adjuvant chemotherapy potentially and radiation, and then sometimes a pill that a woman might take for five years, um, sometimes ten years, depending on the risk. So it it really depends on again the personalized medicine and what what we determine. Um, if a woman is or a patient is off of all therapy in remission over five years, then generally we do talk to them about being released into the care of their primary care uh, team uh, as long as they aren't on cancer uh, therapies any longer. But like I said, some, some women stay on adjuvant anti-hormonal therapy for their breast cancer for 10 years because that woman's profile told us that uh, they would receive benefit for longer duration therapy. And at that point, after five years, typically I'm seeing the patients once a year. You, you know, they're, they're generally um, not having to come into the office as frequently as they were in the beginning. Um, then there are some cancers um, that, like CML, chronic myelogenous leukemia, which um, when I started in my training had a survival of about five years. Um, because we did not have good therapies and, and now we have targeted treatments and we have a pill that these patients are going to be on for life. But they may live a normal life, but they need an oncologist the rest of their life as part of their care team to manage uh, that particular illness. And follow-up scans, I, maybe treatments are complete um, and we're not in that five years or so uh, where the oncologist says, hey, you don't have to hang out with me quite as much. Um, how, how is the follow-up imaging determined? Um, 
keep in mind when you, you know the easy the easy thing for uh, patients always want a, a PET scan. Um, you know the easy thing to do would be to order scans um, without thinking about any risk. But what we have to keep in mind is every test that we order has a risk, and with radiation. Um, with radiology scans, there are the risk of radiation, maybe increasing the risk of cancer recurrence. And so most of these are well laid out in the guidelines based off what has saved lives, where the risk of cancer is high enough that there is benefit for ongoing scans. Um, so for lung cancer patients, they may uh, be advised to have a CT scan annually the rest of their life because the risk of recurrence is so high um, that we really need to follow them closely. Whereas um, there are some cancers that after the five-year period, maybe, or even after two years, sometimes we are no longer doing scans and we are just being a physician, seeing the patient, um, looking for signs and symptoms of recurrence and looking at uh, lab work to, to see if uh, it might point to a recurrence. There unfortunately is no one test to tell us uh, if a cancer has recurred, and I have seen patients with negative PET scans that have active cancer, and I've seen patients with positive PET scans that have no cancer. Yes, there's a reason why we haven't completely been replaced by computers yet. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> there's still right. some clinical thinking that we have to do. Um, I'd love to finish with you uh, letting us know what would you like for cancer patients and their um, support systems to know? One, I, uh, I think we all need to remember that the support systems are very important. And so we, we know from studies, and I can tell you from per, uh, firsthand experience, those patients who have a support system, who have uh, friends and family that, that care about them and wrap their arms around them, do better. They do better at getting through treatment and um, uh, the journey of the cancer walk. So, uh, you know, uh, be thankful for, for those you and I both, I'm, I'm sure, have had situations where we have take care of patients that really have no one else, and it's a very, um, uh, very different experience for those patients. So, um, and we try to um, also provide, as as I mentioned before, in our office to try to be that family. Um, <laughs> I had a patient last week tell me she was so excited to get chemo today. She missed her chemo buddies, and so you know sometimes patients find support and with other members that have had cancer uh, undergoing active treatments or in support groups um, but sort of uh, uh, realizing that that this journey is best uh, fought with the help of others and, and not alone I think that's such an important point because I th- I, I think people feel helpless when they have a loved one that has cancer and knowing that by loving that person and attending the visits with them and bringing them a meal and all of those things, um, truly impacts their outcome and yes. and helping offer them hope and support uh, is huge and helps make them better. Um, so although you don't feel like you can fix their cancer, you are fixing them by being present. That's right. And what would you have each cancer patient uh, to know to reassure them or help them in, in what can be a difficult journey? That, that uh, you are not alone uh, and that... It, we will be part of this journey together that myself and my colleagues will treat you as we would our own family member you know i i tell that personally to every patient i see that if you know if if my loved one were in this chair 
the same thing I'm telling you is what I would tell them so that they feel that these are, um, that they're not just a number, um, that they're, you, you know, not just uh, a patient, but uh, someone that is very important to us. And we, we want them to do well. We, we want them to succeed. And very much a part of being an oncologist is actually just as much of having the science and being a physician, but also being a coach. Because mm-hmm. there are going to be days when patients don't want to come into the office or don't want to get treatment that we may be encouraging them and trying to lift them up to get through their treatment so that we can be on the other side of this. And if you're going through these treatments and you're feeling um, frustrated, uh, depressed, um, you feel that you receive bad news that you're having trouble dealing with, let your oncologist or your primary care know because we want to support you emotionally That's through right. all of this. Just as you were saying, you know, we're, we're your team, we're your people, we're here for you. Um, and at, from a primary care perspective, I would really love for people to know, too, that um, when you hear the word cancer, it does not mean it's all over. I hope that people have heard everything you're saying to know. We have come a long way, a long way. that uh, cancer is not something that any of us wish to hear. We understand that and we know the impact that it has when when people are receiving that information but to keep an open mind and hope as you meet your oncologist and hear about your treatments because they're probably going to go better than you think and the outcomes are much better than what we used to have. This science has come so far and many of our cancers are treatable and you can live. You know, I love when you talk about um, that cancers that were terminal diagnosis are now cancers that you can live a normal life with. You, you get medicines and now you have another pill to take. But, you know, I often think sometimes I wish my patients who I was telling that their blood pressure was way out of control <laughs> would, I would get their attention as much as when we tell people they have cancer because some people are going to die from the blood pressure being way out of control well before any of the right. patients that have particular cancers. And let me just put a plug into that for, for primary care, um, especially when it comes to diabetes. Um People have you have mentioned to me they've heard that sugar feeds cancer. That information that comes from the science of diabetes in cancer, and we know that patients with diabetes, so not um, um, it, who have uncontrolled diabetes, their cancer outcomes are worse. So I encourage all my patients to work with their primary care. Uh, physicians to get their diabetes under control because it can impact your chance for cure and your chance for a successful surgery, your chance for healing. And so all the things that you do to help our patients get through their treatment are just as important before they've had cancer as they are once they've had cancer. And most certainly after. You know, yes. keeping those things well controlled after can help with um, keeping you healthy That's as you right. move forward too. Absolutely, thank you for that. Anytime we can get a plug to help people take diabetes more serious, we will take it. <laughs> our, some of our silent uh, chronic diseases are, are sometimes the hardest. Um, Dr. Flint, thank you so much. Um, I think there is an overwhelming amount of information on cancer treatments, but what uh, my takeaway truly is is Um, Do not be discouraged if you are getting this diagnosis. It is something that there is a team of fantastic, smart oncologists who are going to surround you and hold your hand through this. Uh, The science is incredible in this area. Um, and, And we've come so far in being able to treat your cancers. 
may I put in a plug for our clinical trial program Please. as well. Uh, so we, I, I'm blessed and fortunate to work in a community uh, care practice, University Cancer and Blood Center, who ha- has a, an NIH, or the National Institutes of Health, designated community cancer center. We have clinical trials that Emory often does not have, that other academic centers may not have um, because of that designation. So um, a part of the treatment plan, every patient I see with cancer will be reviewed by our research department to see if there's any cutting edge clinical trial in our office or surrounding areas. Uh, and so um, it's something that I think is uh, an asset to this community. And I wanna make sure patients understand that, that sometimes when I see you, I might recommend uh, a clinical trial uh, of a new drug that we're looking at potentially combining with old drugs, or sometimes the trials are, are blood studies, observation studies, to see if we can help detect cancer recurrences earlier or unique facets of information about that cancer. And, and all of you doing that work is why we're talking about how much cancer has changed and the treatments for cancer have changed because we are always getting smarter in this area. Um, and I would, I would love to add to that, too. I know that a number of my patients have benefited from your practice uh, in that if you don't have access to care, um, you are uninsured or you are concerned about the cost that cancer may bring to your family, um, the way that you all advocate and have social workers and other people getting people into emergency Medicaid plans and, and making sure that the uninsured get the same treatment and qualify and can afford to uh, be treated just the same is incredible. And I've yet in my experience to see a cancer patient not get access to care because the oncologists are um, really leading and making sure that access is available. I have not had to turn a patient away, and I, I am thankful for that. Yeah, and that is that is huge. And, and so if you are uninsured and concerned, um, it is not a reason to be concerned. We can get you the help that you need. Um, thank you so much for this information, and I hope that this leads people to feel more encouraged in knowing that we are doing a lot of great work in cancer, and there's a lot of hope to be had in this area. Um, please join us next uh, episode when we will continue with discussing cancer, and we're going to focus in on breast cancer with a very um, intelligent and brilliant uh, on, uh, oncology surgeon where we've been uh, tapping into Dr. Flint, who's a medical oncologist. We're gonna tap into a surgical oncologist who specializes in breast cancer. We like to end each episode on a positive note. So here's today's Tell Me Something Good. Something good is that you can make a difference. You don't have to be a doctor to help someone. Just by showing up and loving people and being there for them, you can help them through a difficult time. You don't have to know the right thing to say or have any or all the answers. Just be present and let them know they are loved. Thank you for joining us today. And until next time, take care of yourself.